All right, well, good morning, everybody, uh, those in this room. And I know we have a handful of parents who are uh, seeing in the cry room, so just know we know you are in there, and good morning to you all as well. Uh, as always, very thankful to worship together. If you're new or visiting, we want to welcome you. My name is Sam. I'm part of the pastoral staff. And, yeah, it was great to see a lot of the parents, the kids at the park day. Uh, that was an enjoyable time. Hope it's a great time for the college students as well. Always enjoy activities outside of Sunday, particularly for, I'm sure, who parents know. It's a little harder on a Sunday to have that kind of fellowship. So, uh, meaningfully, we do need to extend outside of these uh, Sunday times. And hopefully, we can have more and more events like that. So, thank you to everyone who have planned that. And then, again, a reminder that community group signups are going on. Uh, very excited to see those uh, startups again, and so please be sure to get information and to sign up on our link tree if you're interested in joining a community group for this coming year. All right, well, if you're joining us for the first time, uh, as I think it says behind me, or it will in a second, we are going through a short series on the book of Titus, the book of Titus, and hopefully you were able to join last week. If not, a quick reminder for context, Titus was one of the Apostle Paul's main disciples, one of two spiritual sons, according to Scripture, that he says. And we saw last week, basically, the summary of the book of Titus is that the Apostle Paul, he leaves Titus on this island of Crete for a specific mission and reason. And the reason is very clear. It's to bring order and health to the churches that he had planted on the island of Crete. And in chapter 1, we saw the Bible. It's actually very clear, not only back then, but even for us today, what the blueprint is for a healthy and godly church. Right? And so we kicked that off last week saying a healthy church, every healthy church needs and should strive to establish godly leaders. Right? Leaders who care deeply about teaching the truth and living it out so it'll trickle down into the church, especially in the midst of a worldly and corrupt context and culture, which back then and today we will always be. But if you were here last week, maybe you felt like that's nice to know as a member and a church attender, but I don't have any intention of becoming a church leader. Uh, I have no aspiration for that. So what about everyone else in the church? Like, is the call for us in a healthy context just to support and pray for the leaders? Does Titus address us as well? And absolutely he does, right? The rest of the church has a role to play in the growth and godliness of the church. And Titus 2, actually what we're going to look at today, it is one of the most practical and one of the most referenced texts when it comes to what should the discipleship relationships look like amongst everyone in the church. And so with that context in mind, if you have your Bibles or your programs, let's turn to our text in Titus chapter 2. As we did last week, I want to read the whole chapter, even though we can't cover it all, because there's enough verses where it's not too long, and it's just nice to get a fuller context of Scripture. So as we do that, if we can all rise together here at our church, we believe that every time we open God's Word, God is speaking and moving and present through His Spirit. So Titus chapter 2, we're going to read the whole chapter starting from verse 1. But you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. Older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible, and sound in faith, love, and endurance. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to excessive drinking. They are to teach what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind, and in submission to their husbands so that God's word will not be slandered. In the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. Slaves are to submit to their masters in everything and to be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness so that they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Proclaim these things. Encourage and rebuke with all authority and let no one disregard you. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that your spirit would make it clear, powerful, relevant. And as we just read, that an authority would fill this room, knowing that this is not our opinion, but it is directly coming from you through your word to speak to us a word that we need to hear today as individuals, but more specifically as a church. So bless our time in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
So more recently, I've been getting much more health conscious than I probably have ever been in, in all of my life. And there's three reasons why amongst many. One is I'm getting a little older. And so my body has been feeling very sluggish. Okay, my gut's not what it used to be. And so there's like direct consequences where I'm not, if I'm not being health conscious that I feel. Number two is uh, I'm a dad now, right? I have two young sons. So now my, my well-being, it's not just about me and my happiness, but others depend on me, right? To have energy and to be present. And third is quite simply, I just want to live healthier because in the end of the day, I don't think I need to argue this, a healthier lifestyle generally means you're living a happier lifestyle, right? You feel good, you feel healthy, you don't feel unhealthy, and that's very straightforward. And if you talk to any health expert, which I actually did because I was curious, they all agree that the health of every human body, okay, is mainly rooted in what's called the big three. And this should not come as a surprise to you. They'll say any sort of condition that you're going through or any something, they'll all point to the big three first, which is sleep, are you getting enough rest, diet, what are you eating or not eating, and exercise, are you exercising? That's the big three, sleep, diet, and exercise. These three things are non-negotiable pillars for a body to be healthy. You can try any sort of supplemental self-help stuff, but if you don't have those three things locked down and respect the foundational place that they you know, have and what it means to be healthy, you just simply will not grow to be healthy. In other words, if something's off with your body or you don't feel good on a regular basis, you should troubleshoot starting with these three, right? Because these three, something's probably off. And for parents, you'll know particularly the first two are especially important for growing kids, right? Are they sleeping enough? Are they eating enough? Now, I share this because the church, uh, as we've talked about many times at our church, it's regularly described not as an organization primarily, but as an organic body, okay? The church has much more in common with the human body than it does with a business or a corporation in the way that it's supposed to function and grow. So when you read the book of Ephesians and the other epistles, whenever they're talking about the church is a body, you can almost take it quite literally in the analogy that it's giving. And so far, we've seen Paul, he spelled out at least one essential pillar, similar to sleep, diet, exercise, when it comes to the church's health, which is what? Pillar number one, godly leadership. If a church does not have or strive towards godly leadership, a church simply cannot grow in a healthy manner in the long run. And if you look at churches and the history of churches, this proves true. Now, in that same vein, nothing will make a church more sick and more unhealthy, no matter how it looks on the outside, than poor, ungodly leadership, right? Pillar number one. But is godly leadership all that is needed for a church to grow in godliness? If you get enough sleep, is that sufficient for you to grow? Well, Paul clearly doesn't think so because he continues in chapter 2. He lays out a second essential pillar in the church's health and growth and it involves all of us. And it's this. The way, the way that the church will be healthy and grow in godliness is through the everyday teaching and example of older brothers and sisters in the faith. Point blank, that's what it says. And what this shows is that for some of us in here who may be struggling in our faith, which I know I've talked to some of you and some of you are, you're usually looking for reasons inside of yourself or circumstantial. But Paul would say, actually, what you may need in this season of struggle in your faith is more than knowledge or maybe even just prayer. You might need a godly mentor. You might need a godly role model. You may need an older figure to help guide you in your faith. And I want to make it clear, usually when it comes to the idea of having a godly older figure, for our context, that's within the realm of like, that's a nice option or supplement to our life. That's usually how it's viewed. That's not how it's viewed in here. It's viewed as quite necessary in your growth of godliness. Now, I actually preached on this text uh, a few years ago, and so it was very familiar to me. So it's interesting to see how far we've come from then till now, but we didn't plan it this way. I really think God wants us to keep pressing this topic into the heart of our church and our staff, because I think it's going to be pivotal whether or not we're going to grow in a healthy manner as a church, right? And so the truth I hope to convince and convict us of is this. I think it's up there just so you could see it. One of the primary means that God uses to train up and grow his people is through the willingness and intentionality of the older generations to pour into the younger, okay? 
That's pretty much what I'm trying to convince us of, convict us of, and spell out for us today. And so for this sermon, uh, like I did when I first preached it, I'm going to just use one word to describe that. It's a word that can take in a lot of different directions. Don't read into it. It's just for the sake of the sermon. And the word is mentorship. The idea of older pouring into younger is mentorship. Okay, and I'm going to unpack what that looks like in two primary simple ways. Number one, we're going to see that there is a call for godly mentorship in the church. And secondly, I'm going to talk about, however, there are very real challenges to godly mentorship in every church. And I'm going to talk about how it is in our church. And then I want to end with a very simple pastoral exhortation, if I can put it that way. So I hope to get very practical today because I think it's going to be important for our church. So first, the call. One universally accepted reality, and you'll probably find this true in your own experience, is that we as humans, we are actually hardwired and designed to be imitative by nature. We want to imitate. What that means is that we are all profoundly formed by the examples, models that are placed in front of us. If you need proof of this, just look at the formation of any toddler or young child. A toddler without being taught this, is an impressionable sponge that ultimately will imitate, not necessarily, catch this, your teaching, but they will imitate your example. One of the funniest stories, uh, many, many years ago at our church, uh, there was a dad, he basically told me where they had a babysitter that would come monthly, and he would periodically watch their kids. And they talked about how basically him and his wife, they, they, they loved when he would come because he looked like a minion, Okay, I don't know if you guys watched the, the movie Minions, the yellow creature that sounds kind of funny. And so behind closed doors, they would crack up because like, oh my gosh, she looks like a minion. And, and the, the, one of their kids caught wind of that, of, you know, my dad and mom always making fun of the babysitter. Now, they tried to do it without that, but they caught wind of that. And so lo and behold, one day to the parents' dread, they came back and the daughter was making fun of the babysitter saying, you look like a minion and like ain't, ain't making all these sounds. And so the dad was like, you don't say that. That's not nice. How dare you do that? And the daughter responded very appropriately, but you and mom do it all the time. Mic drop. And it's something to realize, wow, it's true. What do you expect? They're going to follow your example. It doesn't matter what you teach them. And the Apostle Paul clearly knew this, that as humans, the best way to meaningfully teach is to model it is the example. That's why throughout the New Testament, he rarely says, after he talks about important sound teaching, he rarely says, now, now live out my teaching or listen to my teaching. He says, and this is one of many verses, Philippians 3.17, now join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. Other texts, he'll say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. In other words, he's saying, watch me walk the walk. Watch my example of how I live this out. And this was the problem in Crete. We talked about this last week. Immediately prior to our text today, Paul points out the issue that there were Christians in Crete who were not doing this. They were not living out their faith. Look at chapter 1, verse 16. He says the biggest issue there, and this may be convicting to some of us here in our description, the problem was they claimed to know God, but they deny him by their works. So you have a profession that I, I love God and I follow him, but everything you're doing does not Show that. And so in verse 1, Paul charges Titus in light of that, teach the church instead what it looks like to practically practice godliness in their everyday lives. Now, when I first read verse 1, I thought he was saying teach sound doctrine. So like have good Bible studies, go through theology. But if you look carefully, he's not saying that. He doesn't say teach sound doctrine. Look at verse 1. He says, proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. In other words, he's not saying give just the proclamation of the message of the gospel. He's more specifically saying proclaim now the practical implications of the gospel. What it looks like to live in a manner that is fitting. And so a lot of commentators appropriately title this section, teach them how to live. Teach them now how to live according to, in light of, who Jesus is and what he says. Now, that's by way of introduction. How does mentorship fit in here? How does mentorship fit here? Notice, the first thing Paul points to after talking about the importance of godly living and godliness is older men and women. He immediately goes there in verse 2. It's as if he's saying, teach your church to live godly lives. If people want to know where do I look to see what that looks like, older men and women. 
Now let's get this out of the way. Who's old? Don't raise your hand, okay? <laughs> but that's a legitimate question. So who's considered old? I'm sure you're sitting there and thinking, well, I'm not old. I don't consider myself old. Now, I will say contextually, historically, you have reason to say that because the people Paul probably had in mind were, were likely contextually much more older than the average age of our congregation, right? When you kind of do the math, they say, you know, Titus himself was probably more like in his 40s. And so at minimum 40s, 50s, 60s, and, you know, you kind of had that image of like gray hair and like older in that sense. However, does that therefore mean this is not applicable to us? Absolutely not, because... The message and call to mentorship applies at any age as something to either apply to those still younger than you or something, therefore, to strive for. Because it's not like when you become old, you suddenly become godly. It is a pursuit as you grow older to become godly. That's what's going on here. And if you're a college student sitting here today, you're like, haha, I'm exempt. I'm the youngest. I would argue not quite. We have plenty of education children. Ezra, my son, he's younger than you. You could pour into him. You could disciple him. The only one that could say I am a legitimately youngest is probably like a newborn, right? And they have a past. But everybody else, you are somewhat sandwiched between age. And with that in mind, verse 2 to 3, Paul exhorts Titus, teach the older men and the older women to walk in godliness. Now, we'll talk a little bit about specifically what that looks like. But the main thing to notice right now is that the godly character of older men and women in the church matters because look at verse 4 and 6. He says, do this not so they can say I'm a godly person, but so that in order that they may encourage the young women. In the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. I don't know if you ever thought this. I grew up in a context where godliness was seen as this self-serving way to see yourself as this really holy person. So why, why pursue godliness? So that you can say, I'm godly. While everyone else says, Charmander, you're Charizard, right? Sorry for that analogy, right? I'm bleeding a little bit. Like you're just a holy person. That's not what this text is saying. It doesn't say pursue godliness so now you have a badge of spiritual pride. It says pursue godliness for the sake of the church, for the sake of the younger, so that you can now pour into them. In other words, the implication, and I speak this with authority as verse 15 says because this is what God is saying. It is the role and the responsibility of the older men and women to teach and encourage the younger men and women in the faith. Now, let's, clear, let's be clear. This is not to say that being older automatically makes you godlier or more mature or worthy of respect. Absolutely not, right? That's why Paul makes it a point to say, don't just find older people. Make sure that they are living accordingly and we're focusing on their character. However, I think most of us would agree. Paul is making the case that, however, objectively, being older does bring with it a greater level of life experience. Nobody could argue that greater levels of experiencing hardship and setbacks and even suffering. So what it does is your being older, it kind of uniquely positions you to teach those who are younger. Examples I always provide for this is number one, there's biblical concepts and then there's reality. And bridging that gap is absolutely difficult sometimes. So I was always taught and discipled growing up, be, be careful with your money, be a good steward with your finances. What does that even mean? I don't even know what that looks like. Reading the Bible is not going to help me deal with my bank account. So you know what I did? I called the older brother in the church who was way further in his career. He was taking care of a family and the finances there. And instead of trying to figure it out on my own, I called him and I said, can you help me with this? An older brother helped me and gave me insight. And he didn't give me any sort of new things. He just talked about the way he does it. And he poured into me. Here's another one. The Bible is clear. You're called to love and forgive your enemies. Sounds so beautiful in concept. But in reality, what do you do but if you hate that person? I get that I'm supposed to forgive, but I actually really hate that person. You know what's not going to help during that time? You're just trying to skyrocket through that gap. You know what you need to do? You need to find the older brother or sister who's been in relationships longer than you have and figure out what, how do you navigate that bridge? How do you go from hating someone to hating them a little less, to being open to conversate? To being open to pray for them. What does that look like? You need an example. You need a model. Or for sisters who are married or are mothers. And I only bring this up because it's in the text. And so I don't want to bypass it. This text is potentially very messy and complicated. Because it talks about stuff that people don't like to say these days. Things like be subject to your husband. 
embrace the role and the home like as a mother? Like, what would you do especially with that in this day and age? You know what most people do? When they read that, they ignore it. They just don't want to talk about it. And I would love to do that. But it's just so front and center in the word of God. So what I would say is either you could ignore it, you could say it is just outdated and archaic, or you can wrestle with it not by seeing it's a simplistic black and white thing that says all women should be like this. Absolutely not. Instead, you can seek out an older woman who maybe doesn't have it all figured out, but she's been wrestling with it a little bit longer than you have. The idea that though the world said a woman's value is in their career, the Bible seems to be saying it is a very valuable kingdom worthwhile thing for you to be in marriage, for you to take care of the family, that that is not lesser, that that is a very worthwhile thing, and maybe you can receive encouragement. And just know, I say that knowing that I'm not a woman, and I'm going to get to the point that that's why I'm not going to say any more about that, because I think it should come from an older woman, and Paul knows that as well. So there are many other examples, but the point is this. God's primary avenue for the church to see what godliness looks like in the flesh, it uniquely revolves around the mentorship from older men and women. In other words, Grace Hill as a body cannot grow in a meaningful way if the older are not pouring in to the younger. It would not be a stretch to say that if older men and women are not faithful to this call to teach and disciple the younger generation, then the church simply would be plateaued. This call for mentorship, notice, it's not given to pastors and elders. He doesn't say, Titus, you teach them. He says, Titus, teach the older one and older ones to teach them. In other words, I can say with biblical authority, it's not my responsibility. It is my responsibility to equip you to now do this work of ministry. That's how the church functions. Now, if you're curious, like, okay, Pastor Sam, how is the church going to really plateau? Grace Hill is doing so great right now. What do you mean if this doesn't happen, the church will die? I've seen it happen very, very literally. Here's what I mean. There are churches usually, and our church is no different, especially the Asian American church. Typically, there is a dominant age group. It is an age group that kind of all came when the church was, you know, being checked out. And there's a wave of people that all come together. So be it in the college age or young adult age. And so a lot of our church, to be honest, kind of the central part of our church, I would say is kind of like the, you know, late young adult now getting married. That's kind of the crux of our community. And here's the thing. If you go to a church and the church just loves having community, loves being friends with each other, and they, and they prioritize the call to mentorship and discipleship, what ends up happening, and they don't prioritize rather, here's what ends up happening, and this happens to churches. Some of you guys know some of these churches. All these young people, they grow older. They grow older together. They love each other, but they don't pour and invest into the younger. They don't, they don't disciple the younger. So you know what ends up happening? Younger people don't come, or if they do come, they don't stay. Because here's what ends up happening. I'm going to say it very point blank, okay? Because if you don't have this culture, your church just uses young people. That's the bottom line. Our church is not there yet, but I see hints of it. I talk to younger people. Our younger people are not dumb. They have a sixth sense where they realize, oh, I'm only being interacted with when I'm needed for something. You do that enough, they realize, oh, this church wants to use me. They're not going to come then. Why would they come? And guess what? This only happens progressively more and more as those get older. And our church, again, like I mentioned, we are right at the crux of this transition. Our church historically was always dominated by younger collegians and young adults. I don't know when this happened. I never thought the day would come. Now the pendulum has clearly swung over, and most of our members and visitors are married and families. That has become the clear majority of the church. Now here's the thing. And I brought this up with our pastoral staff at our staff retreat saying, we got to kind of think about this and pray about this because when you look at an older person in the church, understandable, it's not their fault, their needs exponentially increase. Here's what I mean. One, the older you get in the church, you become more critical. You're not as gracious. You've seen stuff happen. You've seen things get burned down. You're more capable and competent. So it's easier for to criticize and be like, what's going on here? So number one, you become more critical. Two, Lord willing, if you... Get a family and have kids. Praise God for that. Who's going to take care of the kids? So you need an education ministry. And who's usually serving in education? I'll tell you, most of the time it's not other parents. Or you need child care. Who does that? The younger ones. And so shout out to our younger ones, right? 
They are the ones that are grinding week after week, taking care of our children, praying for our children, discipling our children, loving them. And here's the catch-22. Parents, when they check out a church, always say, I look at the education ministry because I want godly teachers to pour into my children. And here's the thing. Who's going to pour into the education teachers? There's a catch-22. I want my children to have godly mentors, but I do not want to be the godly mentor. The church will die. That's what's going on here. In other words, when the church has an imbalance of expecting the younger to pour upwards, while the older does not feel the burden to pour downwards, the body simply starts to die. And it's just a matter of time, what? Before the church will plateau. There's always grace, but I think there is a point of no return. And I've seen it happen in a church. We're not there yet, but we can easily get there. So godly mentorship is clearly essential to the health of a church. But if that's the case, how come this doesn't happen more often? How come it's not organically taking place in the church? Which leads to the second point, it's because there's challenges. Like with any good thing, there are legitimate challenges. And the first challenge being, the church is a spiritual entity, and there is a spiritual enemy who hates this spiritual entity, namely Satan. In other words, I can say, and this should make you feel in one sense more at ease in your conscience because the challenges that I'm talking about are spiritually inclined. That Satan is bringing these challenges to the church because nothing upsets Satan more than to see healthy, thriving, growing churches when it comes to godliness. Now, there's three challenges that I want to talk about. The first challenge is this. There is a lack and a growing lack, I would say, of just godly character to begin with. What do I mean by that? Notice before Paul even says anything about the older pouring into the younger, he says it starts with Titus, and this is where the call is on the elders and the pastors. So you can hold us accountable to this. He says, first, you need to teach the older men and women to focus on godliness and tell them what that even looks like. And he spells it out. He says, this is what it looks like. In verse 2, he says, tell the older men they are to be self-controlled, Worthy of respect, sensible, sound in faith, love and endurance. The whole sermon on just that. But it's describing a respectable, sensible, patient, temperate man who has kind of weathered the storm of what it looks like to be a Christian. In verse 3, he says, The older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to excessive drinking. Okay. Now, some of these traits are timeless. Some of them were contextual to Crete. For example, I think... The whole like excessive drinking, it was Cretan culture to always be drunk. And so they would always turn to wine. But whatever the case is, the first step towards godly mentorship, obviously step zero is godly character. And so by implication, the first and most obvious challenge would be in godly mentorship if there are no godly mentors. And that would just diffuse any sort of effort to do in to begin with. In other words, and this is not just to the older ones, every single person in here, do you have a category for pursuing godliness in your life? The church needs your godliness. If you're riding off the coattails of my and Pastor Tom's godliness, number one, we ain't godly for all of you. We can't. It's not possible. And two, that's just not what the church is. And the second challenge is this, not only a lack of godliness, but a lack of conviction. Here's what I mean by this. The simple dictionary definition of conviction, it is a belief that is firmly held. Emphasis on the word firmly. You know what that means? It means you hold on to it through the test of time and trial. I would argue the challenge of growing older in life and in faith, it's not necessarily a lack of belief. Rarely do I see older Christians say, I denounce the gospel or I don't care about going to church anymore. So again, it's not a lack of belief, but it's what I would describe as an increasingly loosening of the grip when it comes to the conviction of practicing what you believe. So you still believe it, but that conviction you once held so tightly before, you, you get a little more of a loose grip. I remember when I was younger and passionate on fire for God, I used to look at the older in the church and I would judge them. Because they seem so checked out. I'd be like, I will never be like that. Mark my words, Heavenly Father. I, Sam Bay, will be passionate till the day I die. Don't matter when I get married. Don't matter if I have kids. Now let me tell you, as one of the older ones in the church, if you feel that way right now, judge me. Because I get it. <laughs> I absolutely empathize. When you get married, when you have kids, you have less time. You have less energy. Like I mentioned, your body starts breaking down. 
And a lot of times, these people have done so much good for the church. Okay, let me, let, me, let me get that out of the way. These are people who have put the blood, sweat, and tears to get the church where it is. And so there is a reasonable lurking voice in your head that says, you've done enough. You've done enough. You've paid your dues. Now, again, I'm being preemptive here. I'm not saying that this is a red, red card issue for our church right now. Like I mentioned, we are still a relatively young church, but I think it's never too early to start in the next 10 years. It's going to be up to us to determine what kind of culture do we want as a church when it comes to the older and the older men and women setting examples. Now, I do see encouraging things happen. So what's an example of this? For example, if you didn't know, our education staff, they're always looking for volunteers. You know what really blesses me? When I'm thinking, I'm so tired as a parent, how do you have time to do anything? And then I see a fellow parent who also has two young kids serving in education. You know what that does? It sends a blaring signal across the church that, wow, parenthood does not mean I can't do this. Now, just I'm not guilt-tripping anyone. It's your conscience before the Lord. But what it does is signals to all the younger people. And the younger people tell me this. They say, when I see that dad of two young kids serving, it shows me I can do that too when I become a dad versus when you say that fatherhood or become a parent or becoming married or simply passing 30 means therefore now you have a pass when it comes to serving the Lord in this church. Everybody else will realize, I passed 30, I got married, I have a kid, no time. We almost speak into existence the culture that we create. I really think we're at a pivotal time in the lifespan of our church where if we can band together and establish this kind of culture of godly mentorship by the grace of God, the sky is the limit and we can truly, truly grow. If you've been at our church for a while, can I be honest? Our track record is that there seems to be this ceiling where every generation of older brothers and sisters end up leaving. It's just been our history. More reasons than one. And we've been better in the recent past, and praise God for that. And I always say, anytime I speak on this text, I will always give a shout out When I look at our membership roster, there are some of you here, and you know who you are. You've been through hell and back with this congregation, and you're still here. And I want to commend you because this church absolutely needs your presence. We need a a sticking point to begin this kind of culture. And so to the older men who maybe need a fresh dose of conviction in your life. Look at verse 2. He concludes that all by saying, you know what the older men especially need? They need to endure. Teach the older men to be temperate in endurance. You know what that means? For the older men, simply staying active and not checking out is a godly example. It's a godly example. A good biblical model of this, there's a character named Caleb. Okay, you might recognize him from the Bible story. As a young man, Caleb, he was one of the 12 spies that went to go look at the land of Canaan, right? And then he goes there, and out of the 12, only two, him and Joshua, they're the only ones that they're like, we could take these giants, we could take them on. And you're thinking, Caleb, oh, you young guy, you're so passionate. Of course you would think that. And so you look at Caleb, and you're like, oh, man, he's so youthful and zealous. And so they're like, let's go take him on. But here's the story. If you follow Caleb's story, His passion doesn't wane. You know why? Because 45 years later, now Israel is invading Canaan. Caleb is not young anymore. In fact, it would say he's 85 years old, according to the book of Joshua. And he is still just as enthusiastic and just as confident. In other words, he has not retired. Young Caleb, old Caleb, same passion. Does that describe us, older men? This is one thing I always admire in certain churches when I see Whenever I see an older man or woman joyfully serving in things that I feel like I would feel above when I'm their age, I think it sets the tone in so many, so many different ways. For example, uh, not as many Asian American churches have like older people yet because we're relatively young. Whenever I go to like a, uh, a white church and I go there and I go to the youth group, you know what's so humbling and what blesses my soul? You see like 65, 70-year-old people pouring into these like seventh graders. Doesn't that thought just like tire you out? Like I need to spend every single week with seventh graders and yet you have this person who has every right to just check out, enjoy, and they're like, I want to sign up for a youth group. They're like my grandparents' age, right? Well, not my grandparents' age now, but some of our grandparents' age. That's like my dad saying, hey, I want to spend every Sunday discipling Ezra. That is, it sets a tone. Endurance. 
And to the older woman in verse 3, he specifically says, and this is where I want to camp a little bit here, because I think the most pointed, unique call is to the older woman. He doesn't just say endure. He says, teach younger woman what is good and right according to God's word. Older woman, you not only have the, the platform, but you have the call to be a teacher. That's what it's saying here. It's saying to do that. Older woman, you are to teach. And I want to give a quick note because I think it's important. Notice Paul tells Titus, Titus, teach the older men, teach the older woman, encourage the young men. Never does he say to teach the young woman. In other words, I have no biblical command given to me by this text to teach the younger women of our church. It seems to be a uniquely, exclusively given responsibility that older women have when it comes to pouring into younger women. Now, this is not to say if you're a younger woman, you come up to me, I'm like, Titus too, I ain't talking to you. No, not at all. Men, it doesn't mean that men cannot teach younger women. I would argue men and women are equally in need of pastoring and eldering, and we're going to do that, and we're going to equip you just the same. But it's in the text. The Bible seems to place a special emphasis. There are certain discipleship needs that only an older woman can appropriately provide in the life of a younger woman. In other words, if older women are not pouring into younger women, it is saying that something is missing in the body of Christ. It is a handicapped body according to this blueprint. There is an incompleteness according to this blueprint. Again, Pastor Tom, myself, the staff, we are so encouraged about this. Here's why. If you didn't know, there are women tired mothers, busy people who have been actively meeting and discussing and praying about what this could look like for our church to grow in this particular area. And I know it's not fabricated or fake because why would you do this if you're not serious about it? You're taking care of kids. You're dead tired. You're meeting on Zoom at like 10 p.m. They're the ones who were behind the recent women's praise and prayer night. And it's encouraging to hear that out of that night, generally there's this kind of rising desire amongst the women like, hey, I want there to be more intentional relationships. Super, super cool. But even if there's a desire, I'm sure we all know, it's challenging for a third reason, which is, what does it even look like? Lack of practical clarity. Probably the biggest challenge for a lot of us. Now, this is so straightforward but understandable. What does it look like to be in a godly mentorship? Like, I want this. I either want to provide it or I want to be into it. But what does it look like? And this is where I mentioned earlier, the concept of mentorship is loaded. It has potential baggage. Okay, so I want to give us some boundaries of what this looks like. And just know, if we ever roll this out at our church, we're not going to be arbitrary. We're going to let you know this is what we mean. This is what it should look like. Now, without delving into the pros and cons of certain approaches, I want to color in a broader definition based off our text in verse 7. After Paul tells Titus to teach and encourage the young men in particular, he gives a shorter application of how to do that in verse 7. He says, look, in everything... Make yourself an example of good works. Now, let's break down this application in two ways. Meaning, older men or women, any of you can apply this right now. These two, this two-part application. Part one, it is the exhortation and command to what? Make yourself an example. Notice it doesn't say, be an example. Be an example communicates something that's more passive in nature, which means so long as you focus on your godliness, I'm sure they'll pick up on it and see it. No, no, that's not what's going on here. It's much more proactive. He's saying, make yourself an example. It's as if you're saying, you're showcasing, hey, 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 I'm an example. Look at me here. Look at my life. I'm trying to live this out. Imitate me. Isn't this not kind of really prideful or Paul say that? That's what Paul says. He says, hey, you churches, imitate me. Look at me. You know, like, look how I'm doing this. I would love if our church does that. Like, you're so confident that you're not perfect, but you are pursuing godliness, and you have no problem people peering into that because this is what the call is. It says, make yourself an example, which means you are not only open for people to see your life, you are inviting people to see it. And you do that in confidence because you are striving for godliness. But not only that, part two, it is the extent of the example which you are to set. And this is a challenge for people. How do I make myself an example? Do I need to like read the Bible? Do I need to go on mission trips? We have such a, a, a compartmentalized view of what it looks like to disciple someone. Do we need to go through a book together? Do I need to just like have one-on-one prayer with him? No. Does he say that? He says, not just in spiritual activity or on Sundays, but in everything. 
The more modern-day discipleship term for that they call is life on life. In money, in parenting, in, in fixing your car, in going to the grocery store, in your struggles and failures, in everything set them an example. Why? Because if your example was solely secluded to spiritual things, you know what you're going to get? You're going to get a compartmentalized disciple. And a lot of us had that kind of discipleship. Discipleship is only in those intense Bible study settings or Friday nights, but the rest of the week, that's why you have a lot of Sunday Christian, but not Monday through Saturday. Why? Because we don't even know what that looks like. What does it look like for godliness to permeate my work life? What does it look like for godliness to permeate the way I choose and make decisions? We've never been modeled it. So we go with what we know. I go to church, I go to events, and I go to mission trips. It doesn't say that. It says in everything, because why? Younger men and women need to know that living for God, it is immensely practical. It has something to say about every sphere of life for every waking moment. If you need proof of that, who did this perfectly? Jesus. How did Jesus disciple? Did he say, come to my house on Friday night, and from 7 to 10, I will teach you and be your rabbi. But after that, I'm going to sleep. See you on Sunday. No. The often underrated aspect of Jesus' discipleship is this. He lived life with his disciples. He ate with them. They probably saw him go to the restroom. They probably saw him be tired. They probably saw how he dealt with things in real time. That's why Paul, imitating Christ in 1 Thessalonians 2.8, he says, Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel, but our lives as well. You're not here to disciple just in sharing the message of the gospel to younger people, but the life of the gospel to younger people. That is the model of discipleship prescribed by scripture. Now, I want to get even more practical, Okay. So I'm like, okay, what does this look like, particularly for older women then to pour into younger? And I looked up all these articles. And I I came across one that I found helpful. Basically, a younger woman talks about like, here's how a woman was a Titus II woman for me. Here's what she did that changed and influenced and transformed the way I understand what it means to be a biblical woman. And again, the application goes to both men and women. She breaks it down like this. She's like, this is what she did. Number one. And she gives it more in in points. They shared their whole lives with us. That's the first thing she did. She gave full reign to everything about her parenting, her motherhood, her marriage, her job, her struggles, her demands, her family life, her hobbies. Everything was on the table. And so when everything's on the table, you can ask all the questions you want. Don't you, when you enter this kind of relationship, you have certain things that you feel uh, appropriate to ask older people and the things you really want to ask? but you're not sure if you have permission. You know what gives the permission? Older people, my life is on the table. The second thing they do is they invite us into our lives. They don't just tell you about it, but they invite you into it. You're allowed to see them as they really are. And I struggle with this. I really do. You know why? Because, uh, you know, every parent knows that like 5 to 7.30 window is when hell comes out from earth and it's just chaos. You're trying to feed your kids or whatnot. And I'll describe it to younger people. But it's a whole other thing to bring them into that. And this is what it's saying. Invite them in. Let them see that. Let them see the reality of it. Let them see you bathe your kids. Let them see you wrestle with that. Because what does that show you? It shows you discipleship in action. Third, they're honest with us. These women, she said, they were great because they're real. They don't feign perfection. They tell me their real mistakes. They tell me what they're really struggling with how far from perfect they really are. And that almost gives permission that as a younger woman, I could be honest. Number four, they speak the Bible to us. They are women of the word. They are trying their best to strive to live based off the word and they'll share what they're reading and reflecting. Our formation groups is kind of our church's way of doing this in a more formal sense. Number five, they rebuke us. Discipleship requires correction and admonishment. They know us well enough now that everything's on the table, they will point us back in love and rebuke. Number six, they're examples by necessity and definition. Number seven, they encourage us. Number eight, they provide for us, whether it's a listening ear, godly wisdom, counsel, a meal, a hot cup of tea. These women provide for us and teach us and model for us now to provide for others as well. And last but not least, something we can all do, they pray for us. When they're with us, they pray for us. When they're not with us, they pray for us. They ultimately know that God's the one that's going to disciple you. 
And that's why they pray for us. And so to all the women in the church, let me first start by giving the baseline. You have the green light by God through his spirit to be empowered to be teachers for the younger woman. Now, you have to have a lot of prayer and discussions about what that looks like practically, but the spirit gives you a green light to go full full steam ahead because that's what is needed. And if conversation was needed, let's have those conversations because that's the only way the church is going to grow in godliness and health. Now, to close, like I said, I want to give an exhortation And there's three groups of people in our church that I think this message applies to in different ways. And it's the same three groups I'm going to address. I just updated it, okay? The first group of people I think this text has something to say to are you look around the church and you feel old, okay? And if you want to get more specific, I have arbitrarily determined who is old in our church. If you're born in 89 or earlier, you're old, (laughs) Although now, more recently, maybe early 90s included too. So sorry, early 90s, you are joining us. Say 92 and a half, 93, okay? Contextually, you are old. You are older. Uh, I love it. I'm meeting a group of guys to do just this, to pour into them. And we're, they're all laughing because I'm the oldest one. And I intentionally pick guys of different ages. And so I was like, who do you guys think is old? And so they all pointed at me, you're old, Right? And I looked at the college student, and I was like, wait, who's old to you? And he pointed at another guy in the group. He's like, he's old. He's like, what, me? Another guy was like, he's old. In other words, everybody's old to somebody. You just don't think so. Can we take this message to heart that in our local body, we have not the, it is a burden, yes, but it's also a unique privilege and platform to pour into the younger brothers and sisters in our church. And trust me, I, I absolutely get it. Right now, my life stage has such razor-sharp margin to do anything. My kids don't go to bed till about 9 to 9.15. If you've done anything with me, you know when I say, let's have a Zoom meeting, I always say 9-ish. Could be 9.07, could be 9.09. These guys, I, I, the reason I didn't ask to do this wasn't because I don't have a desire to disciple. I always felt bad. Like, who would want to meet 9.15 p.m. and come to my house you know, in, on a busy work day. But you know what I thought? I thought, what is it what God calls me to do? And the worst that could happen is I can extend the invitation and they say no, and I just go back to just chilling. It's a win-win. And lo and behold, as the Spirit often will do, when I ask these guys, hey, you guys want to do this? No major agenda. Let's just go through a book and see what biblical manhood is. Five out of five, nine fifteen p.m., Meeting at my house. In other words, wow. Maybe the invitations are just not sent out enough. That is a privilege, I would say. Again, I don't want to overly guilt to anybody. Everyone's situation is different. It is your conscience before the Lord. It's different for everyone. Others of us, again, we're busy. We're tired. You might feel unqualified. Absolutely get it. But discipleship happens best for older men and women who are imperfect You know, the worst kind of discipleships I've seen is when your mentor is perfect. I detest those discipleships because you know what that shows? They're not really laying their life on the line. They're not really being honest. And so it creates this weird, disjointed understanding that discipleship is this religious, you know, you have the outside all clean and it creates all kind of wonky Christians, myself included. That's not the kind of discipleship you want. And if you come across an older brother and sister who's there, like they just seem perfect, don't ask them to disciple you. Because something's off there. The second group are those who consider themselves young. And in our church context, other than kids' education, it's probably the college students, like you guys right here probably, right? I think most of you guys sit together. Can I encourage college students to grow in a desire to be teachable, to be humble, to want to seek out older brothers and sisters who can help you grow in this way? Now, I also want to caution you and be careful after this ends, do not go to the oldest brothers that you see and say, can you disciple me? That is the worst application possible. There's wisdom and discernment in how you go about this. But I do think it starts with the desire to wanting to seek it out. And to that point, if, you, if that is you, where your main application is, I want to go get discipled, you need to really fight the temptation to have an over-idealized picture of what this might be. For a lot of parents, they're willing. But you know what discipleship is going to look like? It's going to look like, hey, how are you doing? Hold on. Let me go grab my kid. Hey, hey, how are things going? Oh, sorry, I got to go put my kid down. 
Just no, parents feel guilty about that. And if you give the sense of like, oh, it's not what I thought discipleship's going to be, you know what they'll see? They'll feel so unqualified. They'll feel so bad. They just won't do it again. You know what, you know what those people need? They need to be like, it's all good. I'll just watch TV while you're putting your kid down. It's all good. Let me see your life. I want to know what it's like. That liberates us to feel, oh, this is not weird for them. And I've experienced the weird ones where I'm just like, oh, I'm so sorry. I got to do that. And it's just like, okay, I'll just go home then. I'm never discipling again. <laughs> so it goes both ways. Do not have an overly idealistic picture of this. I don't even think Jesus himself was overly idealistic. Hey, Jesus, you're sleeping in the boat, man. Like, what's going on? Well, I'm tired. What do you expect? So real, so human. It's not this like 100% I'm on all the time. Let me be your older brother and sister. Hey, sometimes we might need you. We might need you to pray for us. You ever think about that? So you have to be overly sober and realistic. And the third group, those of you guys, I've talked about the top bun and the bottom bun. You guys are like the smack in the middle PB&J patty people. You could go both ways. You look this way, you're old. You look this way, you're young. And you're thinking, I'm exempt. I don't have to do either. Absolutely wrong. You may actually arguably be the most important group. And I know exactly who I'm thinking about in our church. Mid to late 20s to early 30s. Young adult slash potentially entering into marriage or just married. Here's why you're the most important and why you serve an important function. A lot of our older members do not know or have a relationship with our younger members. You talk to a lot of our older men and women, the desire is there, but I just don't know anyone. But you know who they do know? They know you. They know the 30-year-olds. They know the 28-year-olds. Why? You've built a relationship. But if you guys don't want to get discipled, there is no bridge for that discipleship now to reach the younger. Somebody got to connect it. Somebody has to be the bridge. In other words, those in the middle serve this bridging function to model what it looks like to be in that sandwich relationship of both being mentored and to mentor. Our church is meant to be a generational body for all ages to benefit. Older, having wisdom and experience to impart. Younger, having energy, enthusiasm. And God's design is that we all embrace how to learn and harmoniously live together in that way. Now, I get this is easier said than done. And again, don't just leave this room thinking it's a black and white application of like, just please disciple me. No, just on a leadership level, we're not just saying this. We've been thinking about this and praying about this for a while. We don't want this to be this hypey, short-lived initiative. Like, oh, remember when we did mentorship for like a month? That was weird. No. We want it to absolutely be a part of our culture that's not just one year, two years, but 10, 20 years. I want Ezra to be the beneficiary of older men and women who kind of took it upon them as a disciple. And now he is also being discipled as he seeks to disciple. And so what is one simple practice I can encourage as we close? Just invite and involve yourself in the everyday life of someone older and someone younger. Just one person. Pray that God brings someone to mind. And whatever obstacle that comes up in your heart that prevents you from doing that, some of us it's shame, some of us it's fear, some of us it's busyness, pray through that obstacle. Because it's probably telling you something about what God's trying to do in your life. And I'm confident if even five of us begin this, we're one step closer to growing as a body. So I invite Paul up to lead us in one final song. If we can close in prayer, uh, we'll, we'll close our time together.